We're going to the book of Daniel. Shall we guess that? We're still in Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 2. Really Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 2, of course, set up this prophecy of uh, the, the world ruling empires, including the final and ultimate eternal world ruling empire of the kingdom of heaven. It will be a reality. Just as the other four were a reality, so will be the fifth. We are guaranteed. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, heaven. It will happen. How will it happen? How will God set up his kingdom? It's not like the other kingdoms. It's not a kingdom of power, of authority. In fact, we're told that God will one day give his authority to us. We'll share that authority. The most imperative, the most critical question, I believe, in this is the question of how. How he does. And of course, that's a work in our own lives. So we go to Daniel chapter one. We're going to linger there one more time. And then Monday, we're going to hit Daniel chapter three. And of course, that's a fascinating narrative prophecy. If you haven't caught this idea, this is this concept that that prophecies can be delivered just like parables through stories. So God takes these stories. The most compelling form of communication is a story. And he takes the story and communicates prophetically. Why? Because it's the most important thing on his heart. To change our hearts. So he takes the, the most galvanizing, the most powerful form of communication. So we have this Daniel chapter one. There, yeah, good to see you. Daniel chapter one. We reflected this morning, King Nebuchadnezzar takes control. Of the people of God. In fact, it says Adonai, the ruler of all things, delivered them into his hand. Almost as if God places his people in a difficult situation. Leave that ringing in the back of your ears. In August of 2012, the Toronto Sun. Reported that a story, the story of a group of tourists. Uh, this year, if you were a tourist, you're considered a terrorist. But uh, a tourist traveling through Iceland, they visited a canyon and spent then most of their Saturday nights looking for a missing woman that was a part of their group. They sent out people on foot on the all-terrain, quads, even the Coast Guard, ready to helicopter to look for this woman. It was about 3 a.m. in the morning that the search was called off. After it was discovered that the woman, the subject of the search, was actually participating in the search itself. She had gone, at some point, changed, her clothes and her party 
didn't recognize it. And she didn't recognize the description given of herself. She was a part of the group, but didn't recognize the description given. Here's what I'd like to do. I would like to revisit the description given. Because if we don't recognize the description of given, of what this final generation, those living part of building the kingdom of Jesus before he comes, if we don't recognize the description, how possible is it that we would align ourselves with the description? I've quoted from several books and authors, including Hans Bornell and his understanding end time prophecies. He writes, Daniel's narratives, that's the story, narratives, are re of religious loyalty to God's sacred law by a faithful few provide the essential type or prefiguration of the nature of a final crisis for God's people in the end of time. Lorndell's point that the narrative, every narrative is like repeat in the book of Daniel. Conflict, a small group of faithful stand up, are loyal, are righteous to God, and they are exalted. God is glorified. Even the pagans declare that God is a God of gods and a king of kings. It's just a rinse and repeat. Lorndell's statement here is that that, that idea of conflict, a faithful few, resolution, even glorification, is the prefiguration, the essential type of what God's people will look like at the end of time. Uh, just two summers ago, well, a year and a half now, I was, got a call from my parents. They live in an old farmhouse on several hundred acres. And they had decided that they were going to move into retirement, downsize a little bit of what they were responsible for. So they had purchased 13 acres there in Southern Oregon. And uh, it, had a couple, it had a second residence on it. My sister was at the time uh, willing to to move, they're not they're not decrepit, but they're preparing. So I I give them kudos for planning. I then fly from Colorado for two and a half days of moving, just loading, unloading, moving across town. <laughs> you know it is. You know it's it's moving somebody is always a little bit of a oh, we all you can't. You, you got to be happy about it. You, you got to show support, but nobody likes to help somebody else move. And then when it's your parents, I'm helping my parents move boxes of stuff, just stuff. The rest of the world would call it junk. 
one point, I'm carrying this very large box, and it's, it's not really staying together. So it's not well, whatever the contents are, are not well, are not maintaining themselves well. I'm, I'm almost to the trailer when I slip and the box falls and, and opens and the contents spill and it spills hundreds of cassettes. <laughs> really? Removing your cassettes? With all due respect, let go of the past. Well, that didn't go over so well. The cassettes are in the new place. But one of the things uh, I was helping to move were the, the, the little library. And, and I noticed they had two, two of the same book, a book entitled Maranatha, a blue devotional book compiled from the writings of Ellen White. I asked for one. I had grown up seeing them in their library, but I had never read it myself. About a year and a half ago, they sent me home with that book, and I, I read it on the plane home in, in the weeks that followed. My heart was stirred with one of the opening lines. Let me read it for you. The doctrine of the second advent is the very keynote of sacred scriptures. The people of God must be stirred to an awareness concerning the second advent, advent theme and the preparation for that event. My own heart was stirred. I took it back to my congregation. One of our members volunteered to buy a copy for every single church member. Why? Because we have been good. We have been good at lining out events, the who's and the what's. But we have missed the how. Generally, we've been very light on it. And if Mark Finley is right in his book, Understanding Daniel and Revelation, it's the stories, the narratives of the book of Daniel that give us the how to the what's and the when's. We know the theme of Revelation. Overcome, overcome, blessed. The overcomers, the overcomers, blessed. But how? How do we overcome? What does that look like? And Daniel's narratives paint the pictures for us. So in Daniel chapter 1, there's conflict. Daniel is carried away to Babylon. Daniel representing, of course, the faith, his friends there. Satan represented with the figure of Nebuchadnezzar, has a plan to train these young men, young women for that matter, to understand and to, to embrace 
the philosophy, the world view, the Babylonian way of doing things. And it's not by accident that John the Revelator picks up that theme when he talks about Babylon and the politics of Babylon and the way to do things that Babylon does in, in Revelation 18. Daniel then is placed headfirst into this context. He's brought to a test. Could be a multitude of things. One commentator believes that the, the, the question of, of diet is highlighted in Daniel chapter 1 to illustrate that the final generation will have victory where the first generation failed. For whatever reason, becomes the food and the wine. Certainly there were other things that Daniel stood faithful for. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, Daniel resolved, some of your versions may say purpose, in his heart not to defile himself with the royal food. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself. The biblical, the primary, a primary way to communicate emphasis and import is repetition. We don't have the highlighted or the underlined. Twice in the verse, the question of defilement. It's an inside question. Defilement of the inside, not of the outside. It's a question of where's my heart? Daniel chooses, his, his associates have resolved. I like the NIV rendering resolve because it, it speaks to the predetermination. The preparation that has gone into this moment in which it is not a happenstance, is not a contextual decision. It's been a firm decision. They choose to stay faithful. They will always choose to stay faithful. Check in with Daniel tomorrow. He's still of the same mind. So he purposes in his heart. What's the result of the decision that he makes? Distract, distract the narrative. Daniel is placed in conflict. Conflict with his God worldview. He has to stand for his purpose. To remain faithful. This is not something to play with and he knows it. This could be his life. Not just a job, not just some friends. Not just his education, this could be his life. He's no doubt already seen what Nebuchadnezzar will do if you disregard his command. But Daniel purposes in his heart. Where does that purpose lead him? What, what happens next in the narrative? I'm going to just linger to allow you to think through this. What happens next in the narrative? Verse 12. Test your servants. Daniel's position, 
his decision to stay faithful to God and not to defile his, himself, not to, to allow anything that severs his connection, that destroys his purity, the holiness, places him in now in a position that he knows he will have to go through a testing time. He's there whether he asks it or not. But his decision, the final generation will make decisions to stay faithful to God. It will place them in the path of a test. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Michael, that great prince, stands watch over his people. Oh, I wish we could just fast forward and get to Daniel chapter 12 right now. It's so exciting. He stands for his people. And then there's a time of distress, of testing, of trouble. It's in Daniel chapter 1. The narrative bears it out. The final generation stands for God. That places them in direct path of a, of a test, of a conflict, of a time of trouble. What's the result? Daniel chapter 1 and verse 18. At the end of the time, at, as they go through the testing time, what's that? Just, just, just track the, the story. There's conflict. They stay faithful. They resolve they, their purpose. They enter into a test. Through the testing time, on the other side of the testing time, Daniel chapter 1, Verse 18, 19, and 20 say there were none equal to Daniel and his friends. Hallelujah. The very thing that causes us suffering and angst and turmoil is the very thing that purifies us. Daniel makes the decision to stay faithful. He holds on. He goes through the test. He comes out of the test, none being eaten. Ten times, it then says. That's the narrative of the final generation. Daniel chapter 1 is a prophetic narrative of the final generation. How God will establish his kingdom, how he will build it so that he can come. Jesus must have a people here in order to come. That's what he's coming for. It's not more territory. It's not more cities. It's not more power. He has all of that already. It's for his people. And his people, the final generation, take a stand for him in the midst of conflict, head first into a culture that sees things very different, that does things very different. They make their choice to stay faithful, undefiled, while still in They're not removed from Babylon. They're in Babylon. They're stuck in it. Apparently, beloved, there is a way to be undefiled and holy before God, even in a pagan world. Apparently. But that will lead us to a place of testing. 
I love, I love that Daniel, that Daniel actually, it's going to happen. It's inevitable, but he actually just brings it on. It, it, he's not inviting trouble. He's not looking for, for persecution, but he says, this, this will be the process. So test us. And by testing us, he really means test the God I just stood for. And on the other side, they are found none to be equal. There are several, several authors and scholars writing and discussing this question of a remnant. It's a word that we We've gotten a little squirrely about using because it, it sounds elitist. But really, what it's meant to communicate is that exactly the narrative of Dan, there is a small group that remains faithful to God in the conflict. Gerhard Hazard, Clifford Goldstein, writers and, and thinkers, Say you can trace from Genesis to Revelation that red thread of a remnant, a, a faithful few. And the faithful few are distinguished not so much by the errors that they avoid, not so much for what they are against, but what they are for. The remnant is known. Not that they were that they were against something but that they were for something. And so sometimes we have focused on Daniel repulsing the king's menu and have not so much talked or asked, well, what was it replaced with? Now, if you think we're talking about your food still, let me catch you up. Do I believe it's important to, to, to consider that? Well, yes, that's somebody else's field. But I believe Daniel chapter one, is illustrating a greater point. What are you allowing in your body? Not, not so much diet. Yes, diet, certainly. But what else? The remnant are known not for what they are against, but what they are for. A.J. Jacobs, have you ever read his some of his work? A.J. Jacobs does, writes, he's an author in New York, he immerses himself in something and then, and then uh, writes about it. So he, he, uh, he read all 32 volumes of the encyclopedia and then wrote a book about it. He, he was inspired, I, I believe it was by his uncle, to, to read the Bible and to live for an entire year biblically. So he wrote a book about living biblically for an entire year. He's not, he's not a Christian. He's a Jew. Uh, but he says he's a Jew in the same way Olive Garden is Italian. It's, it's, uh, he's Jewish because of a heritage, not because of a belief system. All right. 
And so he's, uh, he's always assumed religion would kind of die out, would kind of piddle away. Uh, so he reads, he sits down and reads the Bible, and he makes a note of every law, every to-do, every rule in the Bible. Teachings like, of course, the Sabbath. What to eat, what not to eat. He goes everywhere. Uh, he goes to things like uh, certain people should be stoned. And so he, uh, he gathered uh, a bag full of those little rocks at the bottom of uh, fish tanks, a little granule rock, whatever they are. And uh, because he was going to, he was going to obey every command in the Bible. And if it said stone, somebody that's doing a certain act, he was going to throw. His little rocks at them. So he did this for an entire year, following every rule he could find in the Bible. He's saturated by it. He's not, again, he, he, he places no confidence in the Bible, personally. Uh, he's not a believer. He's a bit agnostic, if there was anything. He said, I didn't want to write about studying religion. There are lots of books about that. I wanted to be living it and then write about it. He said, all aspects of my life were changed, were impacted. The way I talked, I walked, I ate, I bathed, I dressed. Even the way he says, I hugged my wife, had to change. At the end of a year, at the end of the year, he writes this. It's my favorite line from his book. It is impossible to immerse yourself in religion for 12 months and emerge unaffected. At least it was for me. Put it this way. If my former self and my current self met for coffee, they would get along okay but they probably would walk out of the Starbucks shaking their heads and saying to themselves, that guy is kind of delusional. You get what he says? A year of immersing myself in the Bible changed me permanently. So much so that my current self, if I went and, and had this conversation with my former self, my former self would, would say, you know, you're kind of, you're okay, but you're delusional because it changes your worldview. It changes you deep in yourself. You don't see things the same. Apparently, that was the truth when Daniel purposed in his heart. It must have been. It must have been that that. That Ashkenaz must have been like, you're delusional. You're, you're an okay guy, but you're delusional. You, it, it's not about information. It's not about convincing somebody to see facts the way you see them. You, you are actually, your epigenetics are different. You're changed. You see things differently. That's 
what led Daniel to the place of making his decision, I cannot defile myself. The question comes to us, how, what should I do? What can I do to be a part of this faithful few that in the midst of conflict, I stand faithful. One of my favorite stories on this question is from, I believe, the bedtime storybooks. You know, the blue books you see in doctor's offices. It's entitled, I Can Sleep When the Wind Blows. You know the story? The young man, as I recall, I may have grown a little bit in my own mind, looking for a job, talking to a farmer. The farmer wants to know, how, what kind of worker are you? How can I trust you? And the answer comes back from the young man. I can sleep when the wind blows. Intrigued, but not certain that he understands what that means. He's hired. And one night, in the midst of a storm, the farmer is startled out of his sleep, realizes that there are things that must be buttoned down and locked up and put away. He goes to wake up the young man, and it's impossible. The young man is gone to the world. The farmer, swearing to himself that that young man's job was over in the morning, went out alone into the dark to do the work. He gets to the barn and to the, to the, the established places of need and realizes that everything already is done. And it's there standing in the pouring rain and the blowing wind that the words of the young man come to life. I can sleep when the wind blows. If you were to ask them, what must I do? What should I do? I would challenge you to do what A.J. Jacobs did, even though he did it for a, a, a career, a, a professional decision. I would challenge you to do it for a personal, immerse yourself. Let your epigenetics, your vision, your understanding of the world, what colors your perspective be changed deep in yourself. It's not the decision of a moment that Daniel made. It's not the decision of a moment that the final generation will make. It's one where they have been saturated, consumed, and they are different. The world will call it delusional. Hey, those are okay people, but they're delusional. You can't understand it. You can't understand their perspective anything more than I can convince my children at five and seven years of age to understand the way I see things. They just can't do it. It's not one of, of effort. You can put all your effort in and still be wrong. 
It's one of transformation. It's a heart work. The only God can do, beloved. So you pour his word in. You saturate your life with it. You consume yourself with his word. Oh, paste it and post it and memorize it. Let it be as the Old Testament describes in your sitting down and in your lying down, in your rising up and in your walking. Make it a part of everything. Be consumed with the word of God. And then in the conflict, in the moment, you will make the decision and it will be the right decision. Your mind and heart saturated with the word of God. And the testing time, that's no problem. You've prepared, right? The only problem with the test is if you're not prepared, but if you've studied for it, if you've prepared for it, then a test is only an opportunity to show what you know. I would recommend everybody goes to Andrews University. So what I say is test. There's no reflection on my alma mater. But at the end of four years of studying my doctorate, and when I went in to defend my dissertation, I wanted them to ask me tough questions because I knew my stuff. I knew it better than anybody else in that room. I wanted it. Come on. Give me a tough question. Let me prove to you I know what I'm doing. So when the first question came out, they, 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 they made up for themselves. But the first question, oh, my, it, 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 it pop burst my bubble. It was just a question of uh, a superficial. This just explained. I thought, no, please give it to me good. That's that's what we want as we've saturated our minds with God's word. The test, yes, we can prove God's faithfulness. That's what Daniel was saying. Please take us to the test. We want to prove God's faith. We want to prove how powerful his word has been. Several years ago, I lived in Bering Springs, Michigan, pastoring there at the campus. I, uh, our, our mailbox was at the end of our driveway. And it was 23 steps from our, from our, did they just turn me up like that? Wow. <laughs> That's fancy there. Not bad. Uh, I don't know what proper etiquette is. You just. You just wait it out. Try to compete with it. You just kind of. Okay. Yeah, yeah. A, a moment of discussion group. Discussion group. All right, good. We're ready to roll again. Uh, 23 steps 
from our door to the, the mailbox. And that was my routine. Get home in the evening, park in the garage, 23 steps out, check my mail. The 23 steps was because I had 23 steps to sort the mail because the garbage was right there at the front of the uh, garage. And so I had 23 steps to figure out what was going to be left there and what would make it inside. And uh, so I got uh, our, our mail and I'm sorting through it. And I got the giant blue envelope. And it said to current resident, which applied, but it's a Q, right? You know, they don't know. And uh, so it's on the bottom of the stack. I get to the garbage can. And uh, and I rip my mail. I always, I don't know if it, if it actually helps identity theft or not, but I'm going to make them work for it. They're going to have to find two pieces, right? And so I got to I got to rip rip it in half, and and something stopped. And and I I have no other reason not to rip this current resident piece of mail from Nielsen except an angel. And I. I I stop and I take it inside and after going through the other mail, I, I open this up and I'm digging around and it's a, it's a survey. It just wants to know what TV uh, shows we watch. And uh, it's Nielsen, as I come to find out, it's not something I recognized before. You might know the company already, but they do the research. And so I'm, uh, I, I pull out the, the survey and it's no problem for us. We don't uh, we don't have a TV uh, except when the Olympics come and then we pull it out, put the rabbit ears, and get to uh, watch the Olympics, right? Uh, so I think it's no problem. But I'm digging deep into the bottom of this thing, and at the bottom of the envelope is five crisp one dollar bills. Well, you know, Chris's money is worth more than just regular money. And so I'm feeling pretty rich. I, I don't, I, I, I still at that moment did not know who Nielsen was, but I felt a growing relationship and friendship. <laughs> sure, for $5, I'll fill out your survey. And I did. It was an NA on everything, uh, but I filled it out and sent the the card back in the mail. It was a couple of weeks later, probably three or four, that I'm taking those 23 steps to the mailbox. And Nielsen apparently wants to be my pen pal. So I've got my name right. But you can know that it didn't go in the trash can. <laughs> I was quick enough to learn that. I take it in, and instead of being the last piece of mail I open, it's the first piece of mail I open. And I'm not so concerned about the big papers as I'm concerned at what might be at the bottom. And what you know it, six crisp $5 bills. Well, I feel the same way about Nielsen as they feel about me. We're getting tighter all the time. And they had a continuation survey that they wanted uh, me to fill out. And so uh, I filled it out, ran it out to the mailbox that night. 
<laughs> with a little flag up and never heard back from them. But if, if, if Nielsen ever decides to write you a letter, you've been warned. Here's, here's the last, here's the last. I am, I am Richard, kind of a overstatement, because because of a few things that I did. Let me go through them with you. First of all, in my mailbox. Now I know this will be elementary. Well beneath you. So basic that it's almost a joke. Except it's not a joke. And I'm afraid after we left primary Sabbath school or junior Sabbath school or whatever Sabbath school it was, that we have grown too mature for our own good. So bear with me just a moment. There were four things that happened. First of all, I picked it up. Secondly, I opened it. Third, I reached inside. And fourth, I took out what was valuable. All right, let me just review those four with you. I picked it up. I opened it, I reached inside, and I took out what was valuable. All right, we're almost there. Number one, I picked it up. <laughs> I, I opened it. Number three, I reached inside, examined what was inside, and took what was for me, number four, all right? Number one, I picked it up. Number two, I opened it. Number three, I reached inside. And number four, excellent. Number one, I picked it up. Number two, I opened it. Number three, I reached inside. And number four, I took what was out. Beloved, please. We must be consumed with this book. These words are from the same God that created us. These words and that God will recreate us. We must be saturated. Morning, noon, and night. Post it, paste it, memorize it. We must pick it up. We must open it. We must reach inside and we must take it out. It must consume us. Beloved, the Bible, Jesus himself in his parables about the kingdom seemed concerned about one thing primarily. And that was the amount of people 
we would know something is happening, but not be prepared. Whether it's the five virgins or the man at the wedding feast or any other of several parables and stories, Jesus himself seemed primarily concerned that there would be a people that knew what was going to happen, but weren't prepared for it. That's our greatest concern for a final generation is that we know, we know the timeline and the players, but our own hearts, our own lives are not transformed, are not conformed, are not converted. Pick it up, open, reach inside. And take out the valuable, life-changing, life-giving information, words of life, hope, words that will bring us to a place of standing faithful, undefiled, that will prepare us for a test where the test will not be so much a time of trouble, but a time of proving. God's goodness, his faithfulness will seem delusional by the rest of the world. But by the universal majority, we will seem faithful to the very end. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.